The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. All my friends have grandkids, Betty. Everyone in book clubs passing out photos like it's 9-11. That, that is such a weird analogy to use. Yeah, but just give me a little grandbaby, honey. I know it's scary. I know it okay. is. But you think I was ready for you? I pooped you out like a dog in summer and I never regretted it. All right, I gotta go. I got a client. Love you so much. All right? Okay? Okay? Okay. Love you. Did you not tell her? Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome to the latest episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and that clip you just heard is from the just-released indie comedy Band-Aid, written, directed, and starring Zoe Lister-Jones about a couple trying to save their marriage by starting a band. In a bit, you'll hear my conversation with her about her experiences working as a first-time director. But first, Verilyn, our esteemed producer, needs to get something off her chest about a certain show. So we are here to discuss Sense8, the Netflix original series by created by the Wachowskis. And in fact, I think this is kind of the perfect time to talk about it because as of right now, when we're recording this on, what is this, Tuesday of this week, um, I'm seeing a campaign kind of build up for hoping to get it renewed. It seems like it's on the chopping block. Wait, they they haven't made that correct decision to keep it going? (laughs) (laughs) No, Verilyn, they have not. As of this moment, I'm looking on Twitter and there are, there's like uh, people saying, you know, we got to save Sense8. Apparently it still has not been finalized. Nothing's been finalized yet. So this is the perfect time to talk about it. All right. So I'm going to make the case for why they need to get their lives together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me, um, for listeners... Listeners should know, I've not watched the show in its entirety. Verilyn has pleaded with me to watch it. I have so many things to watch. And it's can, like, can we also just share with listeners that like maybe like a good 25% of what I do is just like beg you to watch certain shows? Right. And you <laughs> think that I have all the time in the world. You're right. And I don't. <laughs> this is fair. This is fair. I did watch... Uh, I did watch the... I guess it was the sort of special, the New Year special that mm-hmm. aired this past winter that was like two hours long. Um, Episode one of season two. Right. So I watched that. And yeah. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate so Do you feel, did you feel lost? Like what, what was it? Like why weren't you immediately sucked into this world? Well, so thankfully Netflix has like, you know, three minute pro, like previews okay. for, you know, every time there's a new season. So to catch you up on what happened in the last season for all of their original series. So I watched that. So I wasn't totally lost and I'd also read about it. And, you know, it was, it's, I mean, there was probably some stuff that flew right past me, obviously, but I didn't feel lost. I just felt like I was not, I was kind of bored. Really? Yeah. I appreciated what, I appreciate the scope of the Wachowskis. I think that more like more than a lot of other filmmakers, 
they're constantly trying to reinvent the way that filmmaking looks like, whether it's, you know, The Matrix, <laughs> Speed Racer, and, and to varying degrees of success. I feel like this is a little too close to Cloud Atlas for me, which was a movie that I felt went in too many different directions. And I get that there's supposed to be eight characters and they're all connected. The upgraded species of humanity. <laughs> Look, I also know that I only watched two hours of a, you know, yeah, however, yeah, however yeah. many hours are of the show. So that is how, like, my view is obviously covered, colored by that. So, Verilyn, explain okay. why Sunset should be saved. And what about it do you, what draws you to it? Well, first off, you know, as a person that thinks about representation all the time, I was just in the movie theater yesterday and literally in the previews, I was like, oh, wow, three movies with white young boys at the center. So I think about this a lot, right? I think Sensei, like, just off the back is a given that these are eight people. That, yeah, they're connected. It's this, like, very one-for-all, all-for-one theme, right? And they're, they're connected telepathically. We yeah, think. yeah, absolutely. So the, the premise of the show is that eight people that... Were all born at, like, the exact same moment, right? Eight people that were all born at the exact same moment, and they in can... In different parts of the world. In, well, two people in America, which I have, like, my theory about that. But, yeah, people from South Korea, Seoul, Nairobi, Kenya, some San Francisco, California, Chicago. Mumbai, India, the Chicago cop, um, Mexico City, London. Like, I think as a person that was born in Sierra Leone, I've always had an international lens. But I think for the most part, American audiences are very <laughs> closed uh, when thinking about things in outside of the walls of America. And this show just makes that a given. And uh, even though they all are one body in the sense that they, they're constantly, like in season one, you see them struggle to kind of get a hold of this 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 thing that they're discovering about themselves, which one day they, they wake up and they realize that they are in the body of someone in, like, um, one of the characters, Kala, she's the character in Mumbai. She and Wolfgang, who's in Germany, like, they, are, they have a connection, and so they always end up in each other's lives, this, like, unhappenstance. And then eventually they learn how to, like, take control of this and actually sense when one of the other people in their cluster, which is what they call these group of eight people, are in trouble. And so there's, like, a very, like hopeful and I guess maybe that's the I'm learning the differences between me and you is that I really love like things that make me feel warm and fuzzy <laughs> we have many things in common why did this spirit pick you that is a mystery I can't explain but I will always be grateful for you me too <laughs> and I like things that are dark and depressing. And, although, sure. that's not true. I, I appreciate escapist. Not that I would call this escapist, but, like, I appreciate hopeful, happy things. Yeah, like, where worlds in which you go in there and there are rules and, like, the rules are in place and there are ways to be really happy and there are things that make you really sad or tense and I think, like, Sense8 is the perfect combination of that. But even though that that exists, like, there is, like, moments of, like, dancing and, like, when, or, like, the sex scenes, we cannot talk about this show without talking about, like, the sex. Yeah, that was, that, I did find that very interesting, that whole, like, for whatever reason, it reminded me of, um, 
Rent? <laughs> no, no, it did. So in, in Rent, there's the, I forget the name of a song, but there's like an entire sex scene where like all the characters in the show are having sex at the same time. And like, it's been a while since I, I saw it. But as I recall, and listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall, I remember there being like a giant sheet and lots of things happen. Like people were just like, limbs were everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what that scene in the New Year's episode kind of reminded me of was like you had all these like bodies and mm-hmm. they're together. intertwined and they feel each other's feelings and they you know if one person gets punched in the gut the other one feels it so it's very like like quite literally your pain is my pain right yeah yeah so I think like that's such a trap like that could be such a trap for like hokiness and in a world where like you know it feels like that sometimes well well I mean <laughs> to this, me. This happened, I mean, the New Year's episode specifically came out right after Trump's election, right? And so I remember when that came up, and I was just so happy to have a show that wasn't ignoring patriarchy, racism, transphobia, but also made me feel good that there were, like, this collective that they could depend on and, like, be with each other. And then, But it, at the same time, it didn't make it a monolithic story. It wasn't like... This is a one size fits all for all these different characters. And this is how they're going to win life. You know, it was very specific to their experiences. Mm-hmm. And just like little things like in, in Kenya, which, by the way, um, they changed the character. So, I mean, they changed the actor playing um, the character of, of Van Damme, Cypress Van Damme. In season one is played by, um, we're not going to sit here and try to butcher this name. <laughs> uh, but the first one, we'll just go by first name. Um, the actor's name was Amo. And then in the second season is Toby. And there's a cute moment. I'm not sure if you catched it in the in the in that New Year's episode where he says Speaking of faces, I must say you're looking a little different these days. New Baba Shop. Oh. You're looking good. Very good. Very good. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's one of the things that I didn't pick yeah. up on. Because I remember that scene and I was like, uh, I didn't think of any, anything of it, but that makes a they're nod like, to the... To the yeah. fact that it's a whole different kind person. of like what they did with the the Aunt Vibs and Fresh Prince, oh, where they yeah. like were just like we're gonna we're gonna not pretend that this isn't <laughs> a thing. You know, Miss Banks, since you had that baby, there's something different about you. <laughs> yeah, so he, uh, you know, in his world, he is the person that drives people around. Um, he has a bus. He um, with with the big Van Dam on, on his. They're the matatu. Ma- matatu. And um, he has very specific problems. I mean, his mother has AIDS. He's being um, harassed by, like, the politicians that don't want him to be too big for his britches. Um, but at the same time, there is a way out. Like, he ends up, like, even though everyone's telling him not to to run for politics or be in politics, he ends up deciding that that was his way out. And things, In season two. In season two. And things happen, but... His cluster is able to get him out of things that he wouldn't normally be able to do it by himself. So, like, that's what I mean. Like, things happen. It's not a Pollyanna view of the world. But it's this additional thing of, like, oh, well, you have people from around the world that care about this person in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. Another thing, as far as representation, is that in Nairobi, guess who they hired? 
other other Africans, you know? Like, I Mm -hmm. I love that in each country. So, also, like, there's a character's son that's part of the cluster that's in South Korea, Seoul. And, you know, her world is full of South Koreans, you know? In the first season, they spoke their languages and there was a lot more subtitles. In this season, I think they aired on the side of, like, we know that they're speaking... Yeah. Their language, but it's in English. Yeah, yeah. Which I appreciate. So maybe like that's I'm not sure like how that resonated to you as someone that was coming in from season two. Yeah, I mean, I did notice there were no subtitles for the most part. Um, but I, I guess I didn't really think about it, mm-hmm. which I guess shows my American side. At the same time, that's not like I watch stuff with subtitles all the time. So like I would have been fine having subtitles. Like that's not... It's not, just like, cool, you in Berlin, you speak English. Right. I, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I guess hmm. one thing that I did appreciate about it from the little that I saw was the was what you mentioned is that like they clearly now granted this is also because this is the Wachowski so they kind of have like all the money they could possibly want they were the able to go to in every India. yeah well they were able to go to every location they were mm. at it's not like they were filming this like pretending that it. Seoul was or pretending that LA was Seoul or you know or yeah. that like Atlanta was actually um, Mumbai Mumbai yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, like it's not like yeah. they were doing that and the fact that they used those actors is really great I also thought the the one, the storyline I found most fascinating was the one with the character Kala, Kayla, Kala from Mumbai, Kala from Mumbai, and the like her whole thing about being a virgin, which I thought was interesting, and and the way in which those scenes with sex are used to sort of entice her, but also freak her out, mm-hmm. and you know it was it was a different we you know. Usually when we talk about virginity these days on TV, it's like we're only talking about Jane the Virgin. Yeah, yeah. So seeing that and with a grown, grown-ass grown woman, not, yeah, not like yeah. a early 20s. I'm assuming she's like, she seems like she's probably around 30. Maybe I'm like judging her wrong. But she's no, like she's like. They're all in their, tw- I, be- I remember there being 20s. a birthday of 28. Okay, so they're late 20s, early 30s, yeah. maybe. So seeing someone who's like. And seeing how that affects her relationship with her husband and and they're trying to deal with that and him trying to be as compassionate as possible. Which was nice to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in general, this show shows that, like, patriarchy around the world is present and alive and horrible. Yeah. But that was really, really nice to see. Yeah, I appreciated that. Yeah. Well, see, that's what I mean. It's like, first of all, she's living in this structure in which she, there is a pressure for her to be a virgin. And that kind of feels whack, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I guess there there are cultural, um, people opt into cultural norms, and that's fine. And she is someone that has a husband that loves her and wants her to want him <laughs> she doesn't <laughs> right that's the thing though right because like really? even though he loves her she doesn't really love him and she feels trapped yeah. at the same time by the same society i feel like it's complicated like i feel like it no, shows it that th- these structures are complicated i will say if we need to put like a proposal of, of everything else we need to put a moratorium on using hallelujah in a montage sequence i'm <laughs> so over as soon as that happened i was like okay i'm fast forwarding through this part the montage towards the yeah, end yeah it's very i mean it's, it is like it is it was it's a little cheesy corny it's even even season one they have a whole karaoke scene that kind of has that same effect of like but i guess i thrive in those worlds it makes me feel safe <laughs> comfortable <laughs> there are things that make me feel safe hallelujah is not one of them why do you like watching this silly movie every year? 
don't know. I guess I like what it believes in. What does it believe in? People. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. Anyway, I mean, we talked a little bit about the sexuality, but the other thing I think this episode does really well is, like, normalizing different expressions of sexuality. And just, you know, one of the characters we haven't talked about was is Lido Rodriguez. The actor. Who, the actor who is in Mexico and um, is in the first season one. Um, closeted. He's um, he's gay, but he's living as a very machismo Mexican actor, act, uh, um, star. If it, not even just an actor, but like a star, like maybe the equivalent of like Brad Pitt in his glory days, right? Um, and then at the top of the episode that you watched, he's outed, right. and there's a picture that's circulated um, of him and his lover, who he is living with, <laughs> and they're both like forced to be in this closet of his machismo persona that he has out there. And I just, I just love the way that I mean, not to spoil it for season two, but there is a scene on a beach between the two of them, and it is the most like I don't think I've ever seen love depicted out in the open in that way between two men before i don't know it just felt very like he's supposed to be this machismo guy and he's just like so excited to be with the person that he loves on the beach like who among us (laughs) wouldn't want that to be us right and i so that's what i mean like just like showing us beautiful depictions of people of color in their environments and it's not like othering them, right? And also, I cannot end this conversation without giving a shout out to Naveen Andrews, um, who plays Jonas, aka Saeed from Lost. And let me tell you, I grew up with nothing but black and Latino men in my neighborhood. So, like, as far as like what I was attracted to, <laughs> it was always very specific to you know. But I remember seeing him in Lost and just being like. Um, who is this? I love South that. Asian? I love this is the note we're ending on. Okay. Um, the thirst is real. I'm just saying, you know, so if you want some eye candy, Sense 8 is definitely a place to go. I know I'm going to. Wait, I'm looking him up now because I don't really remember. There was so That's the other thing about the show. I'm already terrible at names and faces. And, and there's so many characters. There's so many. Okay, I'm showing, I'm yeah. showing Aisha a picture of Saeed. He's, he's handsome. I'm I'm sorry. If I was trapped on an island for as long as they were on Lost, I wouldn't want to be trapped with Saeed. He's not my type. But and then that's, and that's fine. But then I think it's <laughs> mostly the hair. I'm not a big fan of like long hair on guys. That's just Well, it's so great that we would never fight over a man. <laughs> <laughs> Though we probably wouldn't fight over a man anyway. <laughs> no. Come on, let's not encourage that yes, you're right. <laughs> also, I'm sure many of our listeners have thoughts, many thoughts about my lack of interest in the show <laughs> as well as Verilyn's. Um, and also there are eight characters so we couldn't talk of them about them all. Um, I definitely have a lot of thoughts about Nomi and Neats and how cute and adorable they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so everyone go to our Facebook page, shout out us, tell us some of your favorite characters. Verilyn can dip in there and, and share oh, yeah. some more thoughts. Have lots of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> hey listeners, it's Verilyn popping in real quick on Thursday, the day before the episode drops to, you know, let you know if you haven't heard the news that Netflix is indeed canceling Sense8 after two seasons. So I am indeed heartbroken. I also found out yesterday that 
WGN America is canceling Underground, which if you're a loyal listener to this show, you know that a few episodes back, I interviewed two of the stars from Underground. And so let's just say this is one of the worst weeks ever for me when it comes to some of my favorite television programming. If you haven't caught either one of those shows, I highly, obviously recommend them both. And now I chat with Zoe Lister-Jones about her new film, Band-Aid. You may be familiar with her if you were a fan of the sitcom Whitney, in which she starred as the best friend. Or you may recognize her for her role as Greta Gerwig's best friend in the indie film Lola Versus, which Zoe co-wrote alongside her husband. This time, though, she's front and center as writer, director, and star in Band-Aid, which premiered at Sundance earlier this year. She plays Anna, one half of a young couple that is still reeling from a devastating miscarriage, and seeks to rebuild their relationship by starting a band alongside a kooky neighbor played by the king of kook himself, Fred Armisen. Fun fact about this movie, Zoe's production crew was made entirely of women. We chatted about the difficulties of pulling such a rare feat off, as well as quite a few other things. And just a heads up, the sound quality here isn't our best as we recorded this conversation via phone. So we apologize and appreciate your pushing through it with us. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on Represent today, Zoe. Uh, congratulations on your debut, your first uh, directing feature film. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Um, first off, could you just tell me a little bit about how this came to be? Um, because I know you've you've written quite a few features before, mostly alongside your husband. But this is kind of your first foray into uh, also yeah. directing it and starring in it. And so you're kind of, your hands are kind of in, in, in all different sorts of hats. So can you talk a little bit about how this movie came to be? And, you know, why, like, why make this your your, your first uh, directing film? Yeah, I knew that I wanted to explore a couple in a long term relationship. And, um, and the intricacies of that dynamic, specifically the way in which couples fight. And I also simultaneously knew that I wanted to write a story that had music at its center. It's always been something that I've loved to, to make music and to write lyrics. And it was sort of the intersection of those two <laughs> interests that, that led to me then writing characters who decide to fight through song. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the songs are actually quite, quite memorable, memorable, I think. Oh, um, thanks. In ter- just in terms, especially of the lyrics. One of the things that we see between this couple is that, you know, they're finding they're trying to work through their issues um, with the music, like you said. And what I noticed about it is that it's especially a lot of their lyrics have to do with them sort of trying to, you know, they jab at each other from the perspective of like the other person being of a different gender. And, you know, it's it's very you you set it up as though this is sort of like a it's not quite a battle of the sexes sort of thing, but like they are very aware of 
the the role that they play in this relationship that kind of conforms to sort of the heteronormative ideas of like how a relationship should be. Um, mm-hmm. Like he wants more blowjobs and she wants him to sort of like get his life together and do better. <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about like what about that gender dynamic um, appealed to you and, and why kind of dig into that so deeply? You know, I, my, my parents divorced when I was nine, um, and I saw a lot of those gender dynamics play out um, in my childhood. And then in my own relationships, I've also seen them play out. And, um, and my friends who are in, um, you know, heterosexual uh, long-term relationships were also, like, playing out a lot of, like, specifically the same fights that, that I knew that we were having. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that there seemed to be this commonality that, um, that I think interested me. Like, what is it that is, um, that is creating so much conflict? Uh, and why is it all around the same issues? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and is there a way to distill those differences in order to maybe um, help bridge them? Mm-hmm. And and what what were those? Uh, I mean, I mentioned the blowjobs, obviously, and, <laughs> and the job. But like in terms of like as you were writing this and writing the songs, like what were some of the things you uncovered in that process of like I the the, the sort of things gender wise that you felt were important to latch onto and important to uh, uncover. Well, I think the thing that I'm most aware of um, and kind of wanted to dig into was this idea that women are nagged mm. and that um, that women are sort of forced into the position of being quote-unquote nags because uh, men are more oblivious to um, <laughs> to household duties and uh, you know obviously these are all kind of generalizations but but if you're asking kind of where <laughs> where I'm drawing inspiration from um, I think there's there's like a a tendency for women to be much more hyper aware um, and to kind of view the world in periphery as well as uh, just in front of in, in what's in front of us. And I think that men are a little bit more categorical and uh, and can compartmentalize things um, with much more ease. And I think that it's kind of those two very differing like methods of processing that processing that bump against each other so often mm-hmm. i kind of wanted to figure out why mm-hmm. and i mean i don't think it's spoiling anything to say that at one point you do or at least a character in the film sort of lays out this uh, I, don't, I wouldn't want to call it the thesis of your film but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, I know what you mean. but but you know it it does it does um sort of talk about these things that you're mentioning here about these differences between men and women. Um, Ben's mom, Ben is, is your, I don't even think we've mentioned the name of the characters yet. Uh, Yeah. Ben Ben is played by Adam Polly and um, he, you know, he he goes to his mother and is seeking advice on his relationship with uh, your character, Anna. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a little bit of advice about women. All right. And I know what I'm talking about. Okay, so hormonally, we are just completely different creatures. Might as well be completely different species. You see us as overly emotional, and that's true. We're constantly juggling a lot of feelings and anxieties. 
We have difficulty separating ourselves from our problems. Do you understand? Like, like we're constantly looking for the connective tissue to find a solution. We obsess. You know, she lays out sort of the differences between men and women, which I I was torn on while watching it, if I'm going to be honest. I was like, mm-hmm. ah. I mean, this doesn't apply to all, like, not even just like all women, but, um, you know, the, you have to factor in socioeconomic status, um, mm-hmm. you know, the luxuries of being able to have these sort of conversations. Um, but I did find it interesting, like, what is what made you kind of want to distill that into that moment? Um, was it just sort of a, was it a moment of clarity for you in your process? Um, was it, uh, you know, like what 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 was the the impetus for including that sort of monologue in that moment? I mean, I think on a personal level, I was interested in just distilling those differences for myself. And um, that that was just part of my writing process. Um, and once I did that, um, I think it it clarified things for me. Um, and I felt like for the characters specifically in this film, um, it provided some clarity and, and I think um, a bridge, you know, through which they could maybe um, find some, some, some resolve. But, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously it's, it's hard to make, you know, uh, like, generalizations around gender that are so categorical. And so it like, I don't, um, it's a big responsibility. That wasn't kind of my intention to just be like, and, and here's how it is, uh, from an encyclopedic standpoint, like it's just obviously my perception, um, from my own experience and obviously other factors, um, you know, I think can be, um, Considered, yeah. I mean, I will also say, uh, uh, after all of this is said, her character also, the mother character, also says, you know, like I'm making generalizations based on my own experiences. Like I can't speak for the gay community or the trans community, um, and so you do have that line in there. And I, I presume it's because I, I mean, well, I don't want to presume. Like, what what made you put that line in there? Well, I think just an awareness of this being a heteronormative story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so I, I wanted to be clear that that's what the story we were telling. Um, and that obviously there are many other stories to be told, but, um, but I think, you know, I, I just think again, in making sort of these, um, generalizations, I'm cautious to, to do so without, um, a caveat. You also, I mean, we haven't talked about this yet, but it's a huge part of the, the film is that we, when we enter Band-Aid, you, both your characters, uh, Ben and Anna, are, you know, reeling with the repercussions of having gone through a miscarriage. Um, And miscarriages have been sort of uh, notoriously known within film and TV to be not always handled very well. Um, They're Mm -hmm. often often treated as sort of a, a plot point to avoid having to either discuss abortion or to have to write in a, a pregnancy for a character. Well, it's like too tricky. Um, so what, yeah. what, like, 
what made you want to include this? Uh, and I think that's what separates this from those is that this, we don't see it happen on screen. Like you're already past it, but you're still trying to move past it. Your characters are trying to move past it. Um, yeah. But can you talk a little bit about why that is sort of the starting point for where this relationship, uh, where we enter this relationship is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like you said, miscarriage is something that I think carries a lot of stigma. Um, and I think for women, it can carry a lot of shame. Um, and so I think it was important for me to handle it carefully and to honor that experience as authentically as I knew how to. Um, but I was also making a comedy. So, I mean, it was a comedy that navigates a lot of different emotional territories, but it, it was a comedy nonetheless. So I think, um, I think the biggest challenge was to, um, you know, create a narrative that did honor that experience while also not, um, I guess, being tonally inconsistent um, or without it feeling um, um, unearned, you know. So I think it was about, um, about creating a story that, that could seamlessly navigate um, both humorous moments and sort of raw, uh, visceral, and, and vulnerable moments. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the production of this film, because mm-hmm. I, I know that um, when it comes to this this film, every member of your production crew was a, a woman and that was a, a deliberate choice uh, as far as I uh, I believe it is it's, it was a deliberate choice on your part right yeah sadly uh, that doesn't happen accidentally these days <laughs> yes yes well yeah can you talk a bit about that did you always set out to have this be an all-female production crew and how difficult was it because people always like to say that it's very hard to find qualified women people call it whatever, um, yeah. <laughs> to, to work on these shows and these, these movies. So how difficult was it for you to find qualified women to work with? Well, I guess to answer your first question, I, I think um, I had been obviously very aware of the underrepresentation of women um, on film and, and TV crews. And, um, and it's very much, I think, stems back to exactly what you're saying, which is this excuse that it, it's just too hard to find women or to find women with ample experience um, to fill those positions. So I think I just wanted to create opportunities for women in departments where uh, it's nearly impossible for them to be mm-hmm. <laughs> offered um, them, particularly in like grip and gaffing and, and uh, a camera. Um, but I think also I was just interested in seeing what it would feel like to have um, women like making art in a collective that was free of the sort of dynamics that can exist um, between men and women in the workplace and particularly when women are in the minority. So, um, so that was really an amazing experience and, and totally exceeded all my expectations. Um, and I think the challenges in hiring an all-female crew, um, you know, it was interesting because even even some of my female department heads struggled because they wanted they were afraid to hire uh, 
women in their departments that might have had less experience than um, men that they had had worked with in the past or trusted or, you know, had a history with. And so I think everyone had to step outside of their comfort zones and take some risks in order to really achieve the vision. Um, and I think, you know, when, when making films, the stakes feel very high. So that can, that can be really challenging. Um, so I, I guess that was like the biggest, I think that there are many, many women, um, who are looking to fill these positions, but I think it's always this question around experience, um, which is obviously such a catch 22, because if they're not given the opportunities, then how can they add anything to their resumes that would lead producers to believe that they had enough experience to fill these positions? Um, so I guess that was sort of part of my intention was to, uh, to give those experiences to women that might open doors for them in the future. I mean, it has to be such a gut check sort of, right? Because what you just said about the other women, um, the department heads being wary about giving that opportunity. Um, it's just so, we all have those sort of implicit biases or, or um, predilections for things and, and don't realize it even if we usually are conscious of, of these sorts of things. Um, totally. And, yeah. And so you said like camera and grip were like the most, were some of the more, more difficult ones to find women because there are fewer women in that field. Uh, yeah. I think grip and electric were probably. Or electric. Yeah. So what did it take just like a lot of emailing like friends of friends of rec- recommendations and recommendations? Like what was that, that extra sort of push of outreach like to, to find those? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much exactly that. It was like, <laughs> um, writing to all, you know, people that I knew in the filmmaking community and asking for recommendations and then having a lot of interviews and through those interviews, um, finding other recommendations. And there are actually a number of like databases now, um, for female crew members that are really helpful. Um, and there's a group called the film fatales and, um, uh, uh, an online group called WIMPs that are these um, databases where you can you can actually just like scroll through women in, in every department, um, which is great that that there's those sorts of resources that are popping up. Nice, nice. And I mean, how did you feel on set, and and did it influence at all? I mean, obviously you had written it before bringing it all onto the screen, but did it influence what actually wound up on the screen at all? Having all those women in that room, no real male presence, save for, you know, the actors. Like, what was that mm-hmm. like? I mean, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it did totally shift the energy. And I think what was interesting is we all became pretty accustomed to it quite quickly, you know, cause we were all just working. Um, but every time a new actor would come on set, they would immediately like, acknowledge it and want to talk about it. And it wasn't just a visual thing, like just the act of seeing an entirely female crew, but I think it really was um, just a shift in, in just the vibe. You know, I think um, it was just a very supportive and like nurturing and patient and (laughs) gracious collective. Um, And, uh, and what was really gratifying was like Adam uh, Pally, you said, Oh, now I only want to work with all female crews, you know, like <laughs> the dudes on set were like, this is great. Why don't we always do this? Um, so that was, that was always nice to, to, to see that it wasn't just sort of, 
um, us living in our in our little um, sisterhood bubble, <laughs> but but that everyone on set was really aware of of um, of how amazing just we just we worked really well together in a way that that not only felt like really supportive but it was hugely productive and and effective um which is obviously so essential on an indie film set mm-hmm. <laughs> so i mean with that move that you made yourself and the other like female department heads who found these women to work on the the movie you know you you gave them an opportunity that like they might have had a more difficult time getting on another film or tv show can you tell me a bit about anyone male or female who you feel has really given you an opportunity um and gave you some great advice on like what to how it is to exist as a woman within this industry Mm, that's a good question um I mean, I guess, I guess my mom <laughs> is the person that I think of first. She was in a, an all-female feminist film collective in the 70s in Vancouver, uh, Canada. And I, I was raised looking at a photo of them on the wall. They were all on a beach in their wedding dresses. Um, and I think, like, that's clearly something that has just sort of lived inside of me, mm-hmm. um, that, that, like that there's something that, that, that required subversion. Um, and that, that we could do that if, if we were given the opportunity to. Um, and I think my mom also was really, uh, instrumental in, in forcing me to like view media through a like gendered lens, like to just see the ways in which women were, um, being portrayed on screen and uh, look at them with a critical eye. And I think that's been pretty influential for me. Um, in terms of giving me opportunities, I would say the first person that really um, gave me my biggest opportunity in the television world is um, Whitney Cummings, mm. who's a comedian. Um, and I had been living in New York and just like, really I've been doing pilot season every year and just couldn't get a pilot and it was really defeating. Um, and she gave me my first opportunity, um, and really believed in me and like, like to the point of like, this is very superficial, but she knew that we like kind of looked too similar for the network. And so she paid for me to have my hair dyed red in order to like before I tested, but it was like that sort of like, sense of faith in me that I hadn't experienced ever before. And so that was really meaningful and I think opened a lot of doors for me, especially in the world of TV as, as an actress. My second to last question to you is there's a climactic argument uh, mm-hmm. in the film. And earlier you were talking about how you wanted to sort of understand in writing this the what the way in which long-term couples might argue or disagree. And can you talk just a little bit about how, because they say, Ben and Anna say a lot of very hurtful things to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things, and and a lot of it, just bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, is very gendered. He calls her like a, I can't remember the exact line, but it's like a sniffling excuse for a woman. 
And, you know, they they talk about how she sort of after the miscarriage has very much shut down and and he has not as much. Can you describe just a bit how that apex came to be and what did you like filming it? What was that like? Because it's very so intense. Like this is a comedy. This is a comedy. But that that scene is is very intense. And the way you shot it is is very different from the rest of the film. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I really wanted to capture the way that couples fight authentically. And um, for me, that fight, which is sort of um, at the climax of the film, um, was just something that I wanted to almost have the audience experience in real time. Um, So we shot it all in one seven-minute take. Um, And... I think like the the choreography of that scene was probably our biggest challenge because we had, you know, an entire crew following us throughout a house as we moved from room to room without cutting. Um, But I think for performance, that was something that I really wanted to uh, try and achieve um, because I, I think that I just, I think we start in a very specific place emotionally and end in a very different place at the end of that seven minute scene. And, um, and I wanted to experience that without interruption as actors. In the in the final cut, we end up cutting into it for coverage, just for um, a few shots. But I think it's it's uncut for about four minutes. But I think I I just wanted to see um, see that played out authentically because because um, I think it does happen, you know, more often than than people like to admit in their own relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, for my last question, the question I ask all of my guests is, (laughs) what is the last thing you saw, film or TV show, whatever, which you weren't personally involved with yourself, in which you felt as though you were represented on screen? Um, I mean, even though it's like pretty stylized, and slightly younger than me. I, I love Broad City. Um, <laughs> I, I think that like that's, um, it's such a refreshing portrayal of like female friendship and, um, and super funny. And, uh, and I dig the aesthetic and the vibe and I just think they're incredible comedians. So that's something that I guess, um, yeah, in terms of like that, that, um, genre has been something that I just like am hooked on. Um, I can kind of see that. And especially the scene in Band-Aid with uh, you and Ben, uh, your character and Ben doing shrooms <laughs> in order for, <laughs> yeah, for the, totally, for the artistic, totally. the artistic uh, um, inspiration. <laughs> I can totally, that's very totally. broad city. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> well, Thank you so much, Zoe. It's a pleasure. Uh, oh, thank you. And I oh, one other question I want to ask you really quick. Do you plan mm-hmm. to try again to have an all-female production crew on an, in another movie? Yes, I do. And um, we actually just shot a music video for Dirty Dishes because um, that's the name of the band in the movie. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah. we're actually releasing a, an EP. <laughs> nice. Um, 
And so uh, for the music video, I hired an all-female crew again, which was great. Um, and uh, and I do con- I, I do hope to continue to do that because uh, because it's just I, you know if anything, just because I think it's an amazing experience and uh, and really effective and productive. Cool. Uh, any idea when the EP will be out? June 2nd. Oh, nice. Same day as Band-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again. It was it was great, great to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. And that's a wrap. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlyn Williams, and our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And in case you missed it, I subbed in for Mike Pesca as the host of Slate's amazing podcast, The Gist, this past Wednesday. It was fun. Shout out to the producers Chris Berube and Mary Wilson. And the episode included a conversation I had with the brilliant playwright Lynn Nottage, whose play Sweat is now playing on Broadway. Give it a listen. We'll link to it in the show pages. Until next time.